On the show today, John MacArthur, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Sustainable Development at the Brookings Institution. And with us is, of course, also my co-host, Rainer Indal, Founder and Managing Partner of Summa Equity. Today, we'll talk about how to catalyze action for the sustainable development goals. So, John, a warm welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. How did you get into the world of SDGs? I, by accident of circumstance, got involved in the very early days of the Millennium Development Goals in the early 2000s when Kofi Annan was Secretary General of the UN and there was something called the UN Millennium Project, which someone named Jeffrey Sachs uh, was the director of, and I was working closely with him and he asked me to manage the project. And this was in the middle of the global health revolution and one thing led to another and there was agriculture and there was fight against extreme poverty and all these issues. And then after many years, I thought it'd be someone else's turn when the next set of goals were being discussed, but kept getting pulled back into the debates on how do these goals work? How could they work? How could they work better? What should they include? And then uh, one thing leads to another. And a couple decades later, I still find myself getting up every day saying, what do we do with these goals? That's uh, exciting, John. And, uh, you know, being part of the Millennium Goals, that was pretty successful. Some bits were. Some bits were very successful, some bits were less successful, and that's, you know, spent a lot of time trying to unpack it all, what worked and what didn't. Yeah. Are you as optimistic that we'll reach the SDGs? I think today we all have to be pretty sober at how much is in front of us. And I boil down the world into there's three buckets of things going on. There's some things that are getting better. Year after year, it's getting a little bit better, sometimes a lot better. We're actually doing better on child mortality pretty much every year still, which is one of the greatest success stories of civilization in my view. We are seeing certain types of breakthroughs like countries like Togo using the new technology of mobile phone and hyper rapid targeting to, during the middle of the pandemic, cash transfers to the poorest people in the country in a whole breakthrough way. So there are some things that are getting better all the time. There are certain things I would say that are just stuck. There are issues like how we're doing on the last mile of education around the world, where we didn't just have the bad news of the pandemic, which was hundreds of millions of kids affected, but we're a little bit stuck. There's a lot of countries that are stuck in their inequality and not doing any better in a really divisive issue of our time. And then there are some issues that are moving in the wrong direction, and they're getting worse kind of everywhere. I would put the climate change issue still in that bucket. Global carbon emissions are going up every year. We have things like obesity and childhood obesity going up in pretty much every country in the world year after year. It's an unsolved problem. And then we have this big, big set of questions on how does the world work as a world? And things feel pretty tenuous a lot of days on how people even work on things together. So I see the sustainable development goal challenge as an amalgam of those problems. And there are 17 of these goals across, you know, basic human needs, across jobs and opportunity and economic opportunity and how our planet works and how we work together. But right now I feel like the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General of the UN have been quite clear on the need to rescue the goals because there's a lot of evidence of people talking about them a lot more. There's not enough evidence on people following through on them as is needed. This is a big year, the midpoint year 2023, to think about 
how the second half has to be different than the first half. And you co-founded the 17 Rooms Initiative, which is actually a new approach to catalyze next step actions for the SDGs. So what is new about it and what makes it work? Well, the 17 Rooms Initiative initially grew out of collaborations with Margaret Biggs, who is a former senior Canadian public servant, and then crucially Matthew Bishop when he was at the Rockefeller Foundation. I now co-chair the effort with Zia Khan at Rockefeller and a pretty remarkable team of thought partners there. We're continuing to push the boundaries of what 17 Rooms actually is, but anchor it in design principles of every SDG getting a seat at the table, focusing on conversations rather than presentations, and focusing on next steps rather than perfect steps. When I go out into the world and talk about the Sustainable Development Goals, people are confronting a few basic barriers to getting involved or to make the gains that need to be made. One is that the goals are just so big, you know, how to transform our world might be a motivating tagline, but it's not really an actionable one. It's just too big. Also, they're too far off. We've gone through pandemic. People are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their jobs. They're fighting for their families. Like talking about 2030 is just too far off. And even most politicians aren't able to think about 2030 and several years in advance. They're worried about the next election, the next cycle, the next budget. But then a third problem is, well, a lot of people say, well, okay, UN Sustainable Development Goals. I don't go to New York. I live in my village, my town, my city, my community. We're dealing with things here. And 17 Rooms is meant to be sort of an antidote to those three barriers. So what do we say? And we're not claiming to be the entire solution to the Sustainable Development Goals. The issues are too big for that. But we are trying to be an entry point for people to take decisive next steps on each of the goals to bend the curves towards action. So instead of saying, well, it's too big to think about all the problems that need to be solved on goal three for health and well-being, there's so many issues for health and well-being, infectious disease, non-communicable disease, heart disease, diabetes, uh, mental health, maternal health. We say, well, pick one issue that you think is ripe for action next year. What do you think over the next 12 to 18 months would make a difference if people cooperated on something beyond the immediate urgency of today, but just far enough out to make a difference for next year? And that seems to be a liberating thought for people because it also brings it close enough that you can think about not what are you going to be able to do today, because that's just too big a question if people are already overwhelmed. But what could you do differently next year? That's an empowering question that allows people to think beyond their current budget cycle, beyond their current kind of staffing plans and say, ah, here's something that we could do together that would make a difference next year. And then that also brings it to what my view is kind of the the turnkey for opening up the spigot of action on the SDGs, which is taking it out of the United Nations. So I'm a big fan of the UN, and I think it has a lot to contribute to the world. But these goals are meant to be about every community in the world doing better. And there's no way in which every community is going to wait on the UN or go to the UN or any of that. It has to be pushed into their own community in a way, or pulled into, I should say, so that people feel like this helps make my family's life or my community's life better. So we've been working on what we call the flagship of international scale problem solving. Think about next steps, get people together. We say pick a swim lane within a swim lane with some issue that could make a decisive next step within each goal. We bring 17 working groups together every year to say, how do we take those 
decisive next steps or how do you take them in your own terms. Then we've also got what we call 17 Rooms X, which is a way for communities to take their problem solving into their own hands. One crucial thing is we want to help communities avoid arguments over my issue versus your issue, because everyone in the world has their own view on what's the most important issue. The 17 Sustainable Development Goals are, roughly speaking, the summary of what everyone thinks is most important. So they're a way to get everyone on the same page, figuratively and literally, on all the things that are most important. It's not my issue versus your issue, but it's problem solving, I say, in parallel and in concert. And so we need a bit of a symphony where we need, you know, the violins to play, we need the pianos to play, and we need someone on the drums. But it's actually a little more maybe jazz than symphony of finding harmony where each of the communities that has its own view of what's the right sound, what's the right melody can problem solve on their own, but come together to do it in concert. So that's the the basic essence of 17 Rooms. I think it's brilliant, John, because if you think about how, I mean, business have to solve a lot of these issues. And if you look at sort of how the business world, first of all, it's been a competitive place to be. So cooperation isn't on top of the agenda for businesses. Then you have had these industry associations that are trying to get sort of people aligned in an industry around things. But the problems, if you look at the SDGs, the problems we are targeting is going sort of across industries. If you take circularity as an example, to make a circular economy, there are multiple industries involved and the value chain is crossing boundaries. And both of end of life and waste and how you deal with that is different from how you do things upstream and, and which uh, parties are involved. So I do think this idea of rooms where you get together everyone that needs to talk together and align uh, across boundaries and across industries. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I think it's the only way to solve some of these wicked problems. It means a lot coming from someone of your background who is such an accomplished problem solver. I think you hit on this notion of even the word rooms, because so much of this comes down to people getting together in rooms or whatever is the physical environment that fits a community to actually talk about what are we going to do? And interestingly, for me, then just switching the word from 17 goals, which is kind of out there conceptually to people, to 17 rooms, which is about people getting together, is much more empowering. And I think there's a lot of uh, advocacy work that comes down to, oh, well, the goals need people to lobby their governments. Use your voice to lobby the government. I'm all for that. Governments really matter. But the deepest change comes from people saying, no, what are we going to do? And the we is more important than the I often. I mean, personal leadership matters. Personal responsibility is huge. But so much of it comes down to group empowerment, because exactly as you just said, Rainer, so many of these things come down to different stakeholders or types of people coming together to say, I can only do so much on my own. I'm a business. I can only do so much unless the government improves its regulation or changes the incentives or I'm a corporate. I can only do so much until the investors or the institutional asset managers change their reporting requirements or incentives. And then similarly, institutional asset managers will say, well, I can only do so much until the governments change either their policy incentives or their regulatory accounting requirements. And there are so many of these problems that the world is facing where industry is going to be at the lead. 
in terms of problem solving, not all of them, but many of them, and uh, finding ways to get the voices together. And we've had, I'm happy to talk about if it's of interest, but we've had a, a couple of really good examples of this in the 17 Rooms context where you get these different constituencies to focus on the same problem, hash it out in a bit of a safe space, air their disagreements, find the areas of shared agreement, and sometimes you can get a lot of new stuff done. And I do think I've heard those things you're saying many times that, you know, businesses not leaning in, wanting the government to set the rules and then uh, sort of waiting until things happen. And I think that is, you know, if, if businesses think that, take climate change, for example, that that's not really happening and, and waiting for the government to take action on it, you're going to be late to the game. There's a massive opportunity here. So for businesses that lean in and think about sort of how the future is and lead the way, the value creation opportunity is huge. I think there's disruption going on on multiple levels, not only climate change, but some of the other areas you mentioned. It's much larger than the dot-com disruption that happened. And you saw how Amazon sort of ate everyone's lunch, right? And if you look at the 10 largest companies back uh, before the dot-com, where are they now? I mean, most of them are gone. So that's the same thing happening now. So I think businesses that don't lean in and and, uh, don't jump into one of these 17 rooms and are not part of leading the way and creating sort of that leadership, they're going to be disrupted. I hope that's right. And I believe that's right. I think there are some interests where some industries where vested interests are protected and you know there's a lot of disincentive to do things differently i think in the long term you know innovation wins that's the essence of economic development that new technologies new products new approaches drives so much of societal gains who pays for it is the question of what's the government's responsibility but even governments can use things like pooled procurement or even procurement rules to say here are the ground rules for a lot of innovation The one area where I would maybe share a slightly complimentary view is businesses are often hamstrung in what they can do by even things like cost of capital. So if you're in an advanced economy in the past several years, you've had an awesome low cost of capital in the market. If you're in a lot of emerging economies, uh, the cost of capital, it might not be one, two, three, four percent. It might be 10, 15, even 20 percent. That cost of capital can change the returns on something like, oh, investing in a green energy or solar farm project and make it unattractive compared to the alternatives. That's a very, I'm an economist, so I worry about things like this. That's a fundamental arithmetic that means both the governments have to work to get the cost of capital down in those situations. But often my colleagues at the Center for Sustainable Development are, are working on this a lot globally. We have to think about how things like the World Bank and the regional multilateral development banks increase the financing capacities to help governments get the cost of capital down for business. So there's no question that if you want to lead over long term, lean in and lead. And leading means doing something new or first or better. But there are also, excuse me, in my view, a lot of fundamental constraints where we can't let governments off the hook for their role in setting the conditions and even the complementary investments, where that's what government budgets are for, ultimately is investing, and investing in the public goods challenges that help drive and bolster the innovation in the long term. 
John, who can be in these rooms? I mean, imagine that some of the listeners here now, they get interested, they want to know more about it, but they also want to really lean in and be part of this. So who decides who is in these rooms? I'll give you two answers. In our global flagship process, we actually uh, curate these rooms. We have an open door for nominations that we created this year. So kind of a call for submissions, anyone who wants to bring a room idea to the table, we're open for discussion. And there's an online portal, and maybe we can circulate a link after this, but anyone who wants to share an idea, please do. If you think that there's a proposition where our kind of neutral ground and convening even methods can help advance a problem quickly, we're all ears. The second answer is we wanna help communities do this themselves. So we've seen groups, uh, a lot of, University level communities have been doing this across North America, Canada, US, Mexico, even Spain, Nigeria. We've seen groups do this where they have these complex constituencies across many different views of what's most important coming together in 17 rooms exercises. We've also started to see cities and communities do this in the middle of Florida, around Orlando, East and Central Florida did this. In Hawaii, they've done this. We have groups in other parts of the world, in Latin America, across many countries, bringing people together around a regional effort to see how to bend the curves. We have a second online portal for people who are interested in organizing their own 17 Rooms X exercise, where we're looking for strategic partners of people who might want to do it in different parts of the world and even help innovate around what might be a tweak in the methods that works best for their community. So we're very keen to develop the platform over time and even the platform technology that makes it easier and easier for communities to do more and more. So those would be the two ways in which people can drop us a line and happy to have a chat. How can also business journalism actually better serve the SDGs agenda? Well, that was the topic of Room 12 this past year. So we had uh, two journalists, one uh, Matthew Bishop, who's the co-founder of the uh, 17 Rooms Initiative, who was uh, for many years at The Economist magazine, and then uh, Raj Kumar, who's the founding CEO of DevX, the international development journalism platform. They came together and really identified that there's a need for a different approach to journalism's responsibilities in holding companies accountable. And the evolution of not just ESG, and you know, there's obviously a bit of a commitments happening in ESG world globally, but also even stakeholder capitalism. How does a journalist need to ask the right questions over time? That becomes a central and maybe missing ingredient until now, a central piece of the global conversation. And interestingly, I think some of the journalists who got together in that room as a bit of a unique room where, you know, every journalist shows up with the full right of refusal and full independence on everything as, as a centerpiece of their own work. There might even be a need to revisit some of the business models in journalism and even newsroom structures so that uh, journalists can play a different role over time to set new norms on how they cover businesses and what they're doing in this regard. The Room 13 is focused on this finance narrative, so positioning really the green transitions as central to sustainable development. So what can be done to see more private finance for climate and clean energy? 
So that was one group that came up with their own ideas. It was uh, co-led by my Brookings colleague, Amar Bhattacharya, who's a global leader on this, and John Podesta, until he went back to the White House and had to step down from the room role, but was you know very central in helping to drive that group's agenda until August of 2022. They're really focused on how do you change the financing structures globally? These are the, call it the multi-trillion dollar questions in a global economy of 100 trillion plus. And centrally, one of the things that we're finding, and it's now more and more clear, is there's not a difference between so-called development investments or development finance and climate investments. They're the same thing. And what do I mean by that? Well, on one hand, there's the countries that are getting hammered by every climate or extreme weather event. That's from Pakistan with its floods or in the Caribbean with uh, hurricanes, where the evidence is now so strong that you're wiping out significant shares of the economy every time there's a major event. So if you don't have a degree of climate resilience in your investments, you're actually just literally slowing down the economy's growth and even pulling it back. It's like you know being shackled in your economic development. There's another side of it, though, which is so much of the big ticket investment that's required in most economies is infrastructure. It's the energy systems. It's the transport systems. It's the housing and buildings. Most of those investments are long-term. They're 40 or 50 years at a time. Most of those investments are also the same ones that will set the emissions trajectory for the economy. So it really matters what investments you're putting in place today, because those are the underpinnings for the long-term prosperity of an economy. And they're also the big ticket investments. And one of the challenges is that so many countries, even if the economics work, we talked about the cost of capital, even if the economics work to make the investment, they might not have the liquidity or the capital available to actually deploy the investment now. And so that group was really looking at how going into like the UN COP process, there's the major COP in Sharm el-Sheikh, that groups like the G20 and the multilateral development banks like the World Bank, how they could shift and update their agendas to tackle these questions where there's really roughly a missing trillion dollars of investment support every year for the developing countries that need the most help. Why does it matter so much to the developing countries? Well, because they're the ones that are going to set the course of humanity's emissions trajectory over the next few decades. It's the richest countries have the most access to capital and are doing what they're doing and with their net zero pledges, they need to do more. But the countries in Southeast Asia, the countries in Africa that don't have the same access to capital, that don't have the same access to technology, even where the numbers might work in the short, short term, often they don't work in the short, short term, but even when they do, they don't have the access to financing. And that's where there's a need to update the public sector systems to find new ways to crowd in the private sector capital in order to tackle climate change. So that's really what they were focusing on is this interwoven climate development financing challenge. So on the green transition, what has happened now in Europe with Ukraine? I mean, oil and gas has rocketed and, and now everyone sort of have been going back to oil and gas is suddenly popular again. What's your view on some think that this is going to accelerate the green transition? in order to become more energy independent. And some are saying, you know, the ESG and sustainability was all bullshit. And now finally oil and gas is there again. What's your view on that? I think all of these things are questions of horizons. 
and I don't pretend to be an expert on uh, European energy markets, it's obviously very country specific and Germany got hammered strongly, among others, by the conflict. And whether that was predictable is a whole other question. It just matter of when, but it happened. And so Europe is dealing with a tough winter, for sure, around energy costs. And I think there's a brass tax issue of the cost of energy is fundamental to every economy. For developing economies and emerging markets around the world, that's kind of a duh, yeah point. That's why they've been calling for more finance, because they need to build the systems to begin with. But I think the question of how to create the right incentives for the energy transition is a first order question for every economy. You know, my home country of Canada, it's a major question how to, you know, not just have the right carbon pricing, that matters hugely, but how to put in place the right building codes, how to have the right incentives for the networks uh, for everything from electric vehicles to buildings and all the heavy transport systems. And of course, for countries like Norway and, and Canada and other major hydrocarbon exporters, you know, how do you have a just transition over time that supports the employment of the huge numbers of people who are dependent on these industries today? So I think these are massive questions that need front-loading of attention. We're still a little bit backloading attention, saying, well, some of this will pay off over time. We need massive ongoing investments in science, even things like the carbon capture and sequestration is still a massive question needing better and better technology, in my view. But there are so many things that require better incentives to say, yes, even Europe with its pretty proactive net zero commitments around 2050 and so forth, needs to not just show a clear path to 2050, but actually needs to show how it can move even faster than 2050 in order to pave the way with technology and back to your point, Rainer, economic opportunity for the world. Because every industry leader that's able to deliver on that net zero transition for Europe by, say, 2040, then has the opportunity to become a global leader for new energy transitions around you know, the most populous regions in the world, which are in other parts of the world. What I'm seeing in Europe and in Scandinavia is First of all, there's a lot of new innovation and things are being fast-tracked now because we realize that we have to get out of where we are and we have to become more energy independent. And I think that's driving down the cost curves for existing renewable solutions. And it's bringing on stream a lot of new solutions that we have been working a lot with waste energy and biogas. And so there's uh, and all these things I think will be very, very applicable for emerging markets. So I do think what we're seeing is an acceleration in the West bringing down the cost curve and bringing new technologies. And this should be fast implemented in the emerging market as well. And I think those will be easy to finance because those will be cost competitive and capex competitive. I was just looking at the cost curves again recently for some work we're doing. And the offshore and onshore wind is extraordinary. The rate of progress, solar is itself extraordinary. I saw some data this week that battery technology cost actually had a bad year last year. So it was kind of a rare increase in the cost, but hopefully the longer term decline continues. And that's massively important for the whole thing, the whole enterprise. But one of the things we're also seeing is that there's growing recognition that climate change isn't a future cost. It's a present cost too. Again, I grew up in British Columbia, Canada. The town of Lytton, BC burned down a couple summers ago because the temperature was so much higher than it had ever been before. And the fires were so out of control. And when I grew up, it was uh, rare. There was never a forest fire that blanked out Vancouver. In recent summers, it's become unfortunately common that there are days where you can't see 
because of the forest fire smoke that's gone into Vancouver. California has been hammered. Europe, of course, has been hammered by heat. And this is just the heat side of the equation. But when you literally have towns getting burned down because it's five degrees Celsius warmer than you know the previous record, this is a massive shift in mindsets. And then you let people know, oh, and it's about to get a lot worse in the next 20 years. I think the notion of what's the cost profile allows politicians and public decision makers to think differently because 10, 15 years ago, it was a big debate on, you know, what's the discount rate you use for your investments, which ultimately comes down to how much do you value your grandchildren's dollar versus your dollar? Whereas now people are saying, oh my gosh, this is like a protect the farm question. I got to protect everything today in order to have a chance of supporting the grandchildren like I'd like to. And I think that hopefully becomes more and more of a stimulus for more and more action. But the ESG greenwashing stuff is real. And we've seen, you know, Catherine McKenna, the co-chair of this group uh, of the non-state actor net zero commitments that put out a pretty tough call to action in the fall saying, you know, there's a legitimacy issue here. There's an integrity issue. You can't just say I'm net zero and then hand wave around it, which too many companies have been doing. And not just because that's kind of bad faith. But as we've also seen, then that gives ammunition to anyone who wants to attack, oh, this isn't worth trying in the first place, which is not so clever either, in my view. So we need to be finding ways to be accurate, to be tight in our commitments, but also in a way that we invite the right types of critique of not, is this worth doing or not, but what's the best way to do it, which is the right argument we should all be having every day. So, John, you are also an expert in African economies. What makes you hopeful about the African continent going forward? And what can we learn? There are so many aspects of uh, entrepreneurialism and technology and business leadership and even a new generation of political leadership across Africa that I find you know, very exciting. The tech hub, digital service hub in Nairobi is uh, very exciting. There's a lot of innovation coming out of West Africa and Nigeria and very tough policy environment often. You see a lot of pioneering efforts to find new, better ways to overcome some of the toughest market challenges. You have people like Kennedy Odede who are leading the kind of localization revolution of local political empowerment to, out of you know the slums of Kibera in Nairobi. And I think there's so many great people. The African Leadership Academy has now been going for a couple decades, like building generations of extraordinary uh, or fostering generation of extraordinary talent across the continent. I think the world has not yet got its head around Africa being 2 billion people in the not too distant future. You know, Africa is the fastest growing continent population wise. It has many of the deepest structural challenges to overcome human deprivation and many of the starkest environmental challenges where climate change is dramatically affecting uh, even the ability to grow food amid a lot of deep societal pressures. So there's a lot happening at once, but there's also uh, an extraordinary sense of dynamism and, and local leaders across the continent who are leading in business and government and science. And that is all part of the complexity we need to have our heads around in terms of where the world is going. And I, I do think that by 2050, Africa will be understood much more as a central driver of the global economy and, and society than people appreciate it to be today. 
Rainier, what about you and your experiences in uh, when it comes to the African continent? What is it that we typically misunderstand or don't see? It's a quite vibrant, innovative community, and the um, both Africa and uh, and I've also said some of the other emerging markets that I've visited and looked at sort of new innovative companies and technologies. They have the opportunity to bypass a lot of the legacy systems we've built up. So we in the West have to go through a transition. If you look at how we have to recreate our economies to be more circular or how to address the climate change, but they haven't gotten there yet in many areas. They can bypass and move much faster forward and create much more efficient value chains, adopt new technologies without having to destruct legacy systems. Some of the industries that we have been investing and working with, you see how these legacy systems are protected and how it's you know that is hindering new technologies and new ways of solving things and that's where you you go to africa and go to india i'm always inspired going there and seeing what they're doing they have some advantages that we don't have the flip side it's part of this duality we have to understand is the challenges of human deprivation also extreme poverty are also still most concentrated in africa quite uniquely So Nigeria is a huge country. It's like a country of many countries. Each state is like its own country. But you know, roughly half the population still lives under $2 a day. And up in the northern regions, where it's also some of the toughest physical environments in the world, it's worse. And so you know, thinking about countries like Nigeria, like Democratic Republic of Congo, some of these large economies that do have a lot of uh, creativity, in the urban sectors especially, there's still a lot of people stuck in subsistence farming uh, where there are new technologies. And I've always been looking forward to the companies that crack the code on mobile farming technologies to have you know, the satellite data and AI-backed handheld reading for fertilizer spacing and helping farmers decide, you know, oh, I need to give a little more nitrogen to this corn plant for extremely low cost. Things like this could make a huge difference, the new technologies to help people who are in extraordinary poverty. But we can't walk away from the fact that there are several hundred million people still in extreme poverty. And most of those people, the majority are still in sub-Saharan Africa. And in my view, unlike 10 years ago, and this is different from the Millennium Development Goal era, unlike 10 years ago, it is now totally viable to think about ending extreme poverty by 2030 for a very small amount of money. Even if, as I say, if we can't figure out any other way to do it, we could do cash transfers to people at very low cost using mobile technology to very quickly identify who the poorest people are in each society. And the new technologies allow us to solve this problem in a way that we couldn't even dream of 10 years ago and we didn't have the evidence on how it would work. Now it's a matter of when are we going to do this? Because every human being deserves some degree of backstopping, in my view. And that's a problem the world can now solve. Is there anything you know that is happening in that direction right now? In 17 rooms, back in 2021, 
we had a group uh, of leaders in that domain, and including the Minister of Digital uh, Technologies from Togo, who had this pioneering effort during COVID using mobile telephony and so forth to hyper-target, and they could use satellite data and cross-reference. What would have taken months and months in previous eras, now they could do in a matter of days. And they got money very quickly and worked with other external partners like Give Directly as a pioneer in the cash transfer world. And then we've seen other countries now say, like Democratic Republic of Congo and Malawi and Nigeria say, oh, we're going to build this up too. And so there's a lot of awareness around, we can do this in an emergency. So if there's a disaster, we now have uh, a global, there's a conventional wisdom that like, let's build the infrastructure to help people if there's about to be a, a disaster, like a flood or something else. What we don't yet fully have is if we can do it for a disaster, we could do it for just basic social protection for you know, like minimum subsistence needs to help those communities. And so I think there's more and more countries that are saying, maybe we could even try this at the full country level to make this universally accessible. And that I think is potentially a gateway to doing it for all of humanity. If we go into some more of a helicopter mode, John, what do you think is the world need most right now? Trust. And you need to think about sources of trust and sources of hope. I think trust and hope kind of go together. If you lack trust in the world around you, it diminishes hope. But in order to sustain hope, you need a bit of trust in the world around you. And I think people also need agency. They need to feel that what they do makes a difference to the problems in front of them. And they need a sense of community that they're not doing it alone. So this is actually the big idea, if you will, underpinning the 17 rooms exercise, where we've now said, like, what would it look like for every community in the world to do their own version of this, to have some sense of group agency, to rebuild trust in institutions, and to be the institution that rebuilds trust around things that generate hope through steps forward. So if the world is like a bicycle, where it's much more likely to fall over if it's standing still, we need to find ways to help people pedal their collective bicycles forward so that they have a sense of where they can go together. So I think that recipe, it's like legs of a stool of trust, agency, progress, and human connection in community are what in every part of the world is hungry for, even if it manifests in different ways in each part of the world. Great metaphor with the bike there, I think. What about young people? What's your advice to them when they make choices to design their life, work? Well, I have a couple of things. When people come for career advice, which you know, I think we all probably get calls from younger people looking for you know, thoughts on what to do. And my general advice is think about what you want to work on, not where you want to work. That's really, really important. Because the answer of uh, where to do something might be somewhere you've never thought of or never heard of. but It's really important to think about what are the types of things, it doesn't have to be a single thing, but what are the types of things that motivate you to be involved with making a difference? And that could be a business, that could be a social problem, that could be you know anything. What do you find motivating? And that's not follow your dreams kind of thing, which is its whole debate, although I'm all for that. But it is, you know, what do you find motivating to be part of? And then the next step is, who do you think is doing the most motivating work in that regard? And how do you be involved with them? And that might be a, a professor at your university who has a research project you can be involved with. That might be an organization that you can volunteer with to get to know who's doing something compelling. 
But this is both a good way to get experience, but also to learn about, well, where is there actual progress being made? Who is doing the best work? And a mutual friend of uh, Rainer's mind, someone named Oren Hoffman, has talked about, you know, hypergrowth, early stage career. And, and I think that's a really important mindset of how can you be around people who you think are doing the best work? So you can be a sponge of them, but also people who are in kind of communities of excellence tend to have a lot of other people in that community of excellence who are doing great work in ways that you just never knew was even an option. And so in those early years of absorption and contributing, that's also a great way to get to know all the different or so many different manifestations that is really like the window opening mindset for the world. And so those would be my kind of early ingredients that don't really provide a specific answer to a question, but maybe offer a way to how to think about getting started for those who want to get started. And just to add to it, John, in your 17 rooms concept, I think everyone, if it's a small idea or a big idea, get the people into a room and discuss how you can solve it. I think that's right. And I, I also think so much of, I've worked with a lot of universities over the years and, uh, you know, both as friends or allies or people call me for thoughts, or I used to work in the university setting and it's on the sustainable development issues and the sustainable development goals. The students are typically so far ahead of the faculty. There's all these surveys around what do students care about most. And very often it's some version. It might not use the exact terms, but sometimes it does. The sustainable development goals, social justice, tackling inequality, future of the planet, equal opportunity for all. These are areas where it's really important for young people to know the reason we have this problem today is because the previous generation hasn't figured it out. So don't wait on them to solve this you are actually probably even better placed to solve it than the previous generation because you don't think things have to work the way they work. So the fresh perspective of the young generation, it's not just like the technology and entrepreneur and computer science. It's actually kind of every societal problem where the fresh approach can be the breakthrough. And in that spirit, even with 17 Rooms, not to keep coming back to it, but it is true, we've started to see some groups of young people and even networks of young people come to us saying, we want to build a young people's approach to 17 rooms, which is super exciting for us. And even I, just yesterday, I got an email from a professor at uh, a university in Southern Europe saying, I want to use 17 rooms to develop a pedagogy for undergraduate curriculum. And we've had others ask us about using it for grade school learnings about, you know, not just how the world works, but how to contribute. These are all some of the problems that are first order for us, where again, we're just a small team so far that's been trying to build this effort as a platform, but the best solutions will always come from someone who sees something from an angle that I've never thought of. And so we're really keen to learn those different perspectives and would only encourage the young people who might be listening out there to know that uh, A, your voice matters, more importantly, even your insight matters. And crucially, you know, we can only do so much directly and working to partner with others who want to, you know, pioneer their own way forward. Great advice. So Rainer and John, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? Collaboration is key. To solving some of these problems and if multiple stakeholders don't get into the same room and discuss the solution we're going nowhere so john was mentioning some of the SDGs that were positive in development some that were sort of going sideways and some that were going negative negative. and i think the only way to make them go positive is to get into the get all the stakeholders together into the same room 
and discuss the theory of change and how to get there and how we collaborate to get there. I'm reminded of uh, our mutual friend, Adam Grant. Uh, he had this great podcast episode early on and talked about, I forget what they called it on the NBA basketball, like the fifth man factor. And there's the superstars of the NBA who score the most points, who have the best statistics. And they're the kind of heroes of the marketing in the league. But there are these people on every team who are the ones who, when they're on the floor, the team does best. And it doesn't show up in the traditional statistics of like points or rebounds or assists, but it shows up in terms of how the team's doing. And I think that's really important for this notion of cooperation, because in the global business world, often it's like a hero worship culture of who's the hero who did everything. But so much of the problem solving of how the world moves forward comes down to those people who like make the magic on the floor in the room to help bring out the best in everyone in the room and maybe even find a new way forward for how people can cooperate and contribute. Often that comes down to being what I call a professional translator to understand the words, the terms, the motivations of the different people in a room and find a way to stitch together a shared action for them all that, that works for all of them. But so often it comes down to who's willing to put in the work to find a way to get people to do something together and literally just to get stuff done together. And that I think is there's campaign after campaign and issue after issue in the world where yes, there are heroes, there are pioneers, there are people who, you know, blazed a trail forward, but there are also people who you've never heard of who made the magic happen. And we need all of the above for these big global issues. Great. It's like silent heroes. We need all kinds of heroes. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Rainier. Thanks for a great conversation. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.